0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm your host on the air again, Stephen Siegel, and it's my great pleasure today on New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies and New Books in Literature to be joined by my guest, Professor Molly Tomasi Blazing who has written a book published by Cornell University Press in 2021 called Snapshots of the Soul, Photo-Poetic Encounters in Modern Russian Culture. Congratulations, first of all, um, Molly, on your book, and thanks so much for joining us today.
1: Thanks so much, Stephen, and thanks for having me on the podcast.
0: So a little bit about... Um, Professor Blazing, Molly Tomasi Blazing, holds degrees in Slavic languages and literatures from Harvard University and the University of Wisconsin-Madison, Ph.D. 2014. After teaching at Florida State University, Wellesley College, and Oberlin, she joined the faculty of the University of Kentucky as an assistant professor of Russian studies in 2014 and was promoted, another congratulations here, to associate professor in July of 2021. Uh, at University of Kentucky she teaches second year russian language as well as courses on 20th and 21st century russian culture madness in russian lit and culture and russian film i'm also interested in what she's developing a course for russian uh, for stem and related instructional materials for advanced level russian language learners her research focuses on modern Russian poetry, which we'll talk about, especially Marina Tsvetaeva's life and works intersections of literature and the visual arts and cultural history. And her other many um, interests include Russian cinema and contemporary theater and political performances. So uh, we'll um, hold the phone for her current work, and and we'll talk about that toward the end. But I want to focus as much attention as I possibly can on the book today, Snapshots of the Soul, Photo poetic encounters in modern Russian culture. So, my first question is a question for, for everybody, and this is the origin story. What motivated you to write the book?
1: Thanks, that's a, that's a great question. So, the, this project emerges from my, uh, the dissertation I wrote at the University of Wisconsin under the direction of David Bethay. And I was really fortunate to have um, outstanding training there at Wisconsin as a poetry scholar. And so the, the project emerges from some encounters I had with photopoetic texts kind of early on in, in graduate school. Um, one thing that comes to mind is I read Emily Clannan's uh, outstanding book on the late the late 19th century post-Pushkinian poet Afanasi Fiat. And she writes about how Fiat is one of the first generations of Russian poets to sort of have his photograph taken and to be immersed in this new kind of cultural phenomenon of photography. And so I I started thinking about how, you know, this question of how the development, the emergence and development of photography in the late 19th century and into the 20th century and through to the present day has shaped poetic writing, how it changes how we see ourselves, you know, giving us a new method for self-conception. Um, it, it offers a new way of archiving personal histories and, and larger histories. And I think it gives us a new relationship with memory um, and, and how we conceptualize the passage of time. And many, many um, photo theorists write about how photography forces us to sort of encounter our own mortality and and make sense of death in a new way. So that's certainly something that comes comes into play in in my book. Um, and another another project I worked on early on was about the Polish poet Wislawa Szymborska, who has this really moving poem about September 11th. I don't know if you're familiar with this. Um, it's it's called a photograph from September 11th, and I thought I might. It's not a Russian poem, but it's it's such a formative for me that I thought I could just read a bit of it to give you a sense of what she's doing. And I think what's powerful about this is the way that it it heightened my attention to what, um, to the paradox of what, or the problem of what photography can do that poetry can't, and what poetry can do that photography can't. And this is an important part of the thesis of my book, is this, the way that photography poses a challenge and almost a threat to the poet. Um, but Shimborska does something really interesting. So she's thinking about this photograph from September 11th, this kind of iconic image of bodies falling from, from the towers. Um, and so she, she begins this poem, they jumped from the burning floors, one, two, and a few more, higher, lower. The photograph halted them in life and now keeps them above the earth, toward the earth. Each is still complete with a particular face and blood well hidden. There's enough time for hair to come loose, for keys and coins to fall from pockets. They're still within the air's reach, within the compass of places that have just now opened. I can do only two things for them. Describe this flight and not add a last line. So that that closing image right where she's saying what can i as a poet do to meet photography and its in its you know the possibility of preserving them these these lives before the catastrophic end right that's what the photograph has done stilled them in this moment and so she she shows us that she has this opportunity, almost this urge to complete the thought, right? To add that last line, to tell us the story of what happens next, because that's what literature, that's what poetry can do, is offer, you know, that kind of meet that urge for a full narrative story around the image. Um, but she resists that out of deference, right, to the image. So she's she's kind of giving into what photography has to offer, in holding them in this space of life and resisting um, adding that last line, which which is you know what poetry offers, right to kind of complete complete the narrative um, and i I think this this poem is i don't I don't write about it um, I think it's in a footnote somewhere in my book, but it's it's so formative in my thinking about this competition and inspiration that photography um, provides and the sort of new challenge to poetic forms um, and and the poets of my book will meet this challenge in different ways depending on their own yeah. sort of poetic system
0: yeah yeah and and I think that's that's a great leadoff. Um I listening to you it's so riveting and almost shaking to, to hear that because I'm thinking of how as you describe poets become interested in photography and, and what they write about photography as, as integral in many ways to their creative worlds. So I, I wonder if you could describe for our, our listeners your choice of, of poets. They're mainly writing in Russian from what i understand who who are they and what drew you to their their archives and and their family papers and their writings and so on
1: yeah so as i as i think about you know, the, the method for selecting these poets some of it had to do with access i had to archives and and just sort of moments of of good luck in in encountering their works and discovering their interest in and in relationship to photography but I think the selection uh, of poets is also meaningful in its kind of diversity and range. So I have, um, I open the book with a chapter on Boris Pasternak um, and Pasternak is from this artistic family. His father is a, is a painter. His brother is a, an architect and a passionate photographer. And Pasternak himself, Boris Pasternak, is drawn to... Um, all the new technology of the time. He's interested in photography. He's interested in cinema. You know, he's he's interested in philosophy and you know, sort of the philosophy of light and motion. And um, he's got a lot of interests. And he's a he's a writer who writes a lot with and through and and about photography. And then paired with him is uh, in the next chapter is Marina Tsvetaeva. So she's a contemporary of Puster Knox. They both um, have you know, fathers who are connected to the art world. So Marina Tsvitaeva's father, uh, Ivan Svetayev is the founder of the what is now the Pushkin Museum of Art in Moscow. Both of their mothers are pianists. They have these kind of um, parallel lives, but much of Marina Tsvitaeva's, um creative life happens in immigration. So she leaves after um, after the Civil War. So we have these you know, kind of parallel experiences of, um, Soviet history, but one happening in Russia and one happening primarily in emigration. Uh, then I have a chapter that sort of fast forwards a bit. Uh, we look at Joseph Brodsky, another poet in emigration from the next generation, and Bella Akhmadulina is chapter four. So these are again a male and a female poet um, working around the same time, but one in Russia, one in the space of emigration. The other thing, though, that um, I think is interesting about that selection of four is that in the case of Pasternak and Brodsky, so Brodsky's father is a naval photographer. And, and as I said, Pasternak also is kind of, these are predictable uh, themes. We expect Pasternak and Brodsky to write about photography because of their biographies and their sort of creative orientations. But with, with Svetaiva and Ahmadullina, they're not poets we think of as being particularly oriented to the visual. And in fact, Marina Tsutaeva actively writes against the visual. She, she, you know, fills out surveys and writes writes things about being completely disinterested and, you know, not not drawn at all to the visual world. She even seems to celebrate her own nearsightedness and, you know, doesn't wear glasses because she likes the world kind of foggy. And so the discovery of her really Passionate uh, interest in photography was um, was something that was really exciting to me, and it's it's one of my favorite parts of the book. And Akhmadulina also has a, uh, several poems and and writes pretty frequently about photography, even though we think of her as someone you know exploring kind of the musicality and the performance of sound in her in her poetry.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I, I'm giggling, Molly, because of mm-hmm. some of those paradoxes that that you uncover. I, I think that that the notion that someone who's, you know, in many ways denigrating the visual, um, it, it is actually like a really passionate amateur photographer that that has that has to be so revealing to you as as a way to un- uncover the creative process not not just as an individual creating poems but also in her relationships and in her intersubjective worlds um, and, and I wonder if you if you might talk a little bit about your philosophical arguments I think this is such a, a big part of your book I, I'm really unfamiliar with with Ecrasis and and I, I wonder if you could describe this and, and how you come up with this notion of photo so what 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 is that for understanding Russian culture, especially the, the worlds between the visual and the textual?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So Ekphrasis so goes back to antiquity. It's, it's any writing, um, you know, verbal art that describes a work of visual art. And so we have, you know, back at the beginning, it's Achilles' shield in, in, in Homer. Um, a description of a visual artwork uh, in words. And some of my early work on, on poetry and ekphrasis really opened up this topic for me. So I wrote a paper in graduate school on, on Afanasi Fiat and his uh, he had traveled to European art museums and wrote a lot of poems about painting and sculpture. And I was writing about, you know, the sort of the difference between writing about a painting versus writing about a sculpture. And I came upon a, a poem that he wrote about a photograph of Tolstoy's wife And it's a completely different poem. He's, you know, it's bringing up different issues for him where we can see him kind of contemplating how this image of Sophia Tolstoy is, is, you know, a younger version of her. And it's not the same as the woman that he's come to know as a close friend. And he's looking, kind of imagining himself aging as well and contemplating this this, uh, photograph. And so I think there's something different that happens with poems about, Photographs and photography, and so um, I've I've been looking. You know, in the course of my research, I looked at um, let's see Stephen Hutching's excellent book, um, Russian Literary Culture in the Camera Age, and this book explores how uh, primarily how prose writers in the nineteenth century are writing about photographs and can see this sort of. Menacing kind of presentation of the photograph as a, as you know supposedly coming from life, but yet distorting the image and somehow disrupting um, the the culture. And so you can you can feel this kind of palpable threat of of the photographic vis a vis literary culture. Um, and and Hutching's book takes up one poetic project. He looks at Rodchenko's partnership with Vladimir Mayakovsky on um praeta about that, this um this long poem that's illustrated with photo photo collage. Um and and there's a there's quite a lot of work when we think about photography in Russian literary culture, we think about illustration, we think about Nabokov's of speak memory and the photographs that are incorporated in in that novel, um, that intersection of text and image. But what I'm doing is is different on a number of levels. So I'm I'm interested in looking primarily at lyric poetry, as opposed to prose writing, because there's this whole world um, and this, I don't know, something I see as kind of an ontological relationship between the snapshot and the lyric poem. They're, they're compressed, um, they, they are framed in a particular way. The way that we carry a photograph in our memory or in our wallets can be the same as we sort of carry a, a poem in our memories and um, in, in, on our person. Um, so I think, I think there's something that connects lyric poetry with the photographic snapshot that's that's worth exploring. Um, in terms of photopoetics, I, I read about how my study moves beyond ekphrasis. So I have some some poems that I, that I work with are clearly ekphrasis, their, their poems about particular photographs, real or imagined in some cases. But Russian poets are doing so much more than ekphrasis. They're, they're using the language of photography and photochemical metaphors to do new things uh, with, with uh, the photographic within the space of poetic writing. And so when I talk about photopoetics, I'm looking at what, what qualities of the photographic, you know, sort of the instantaneous snapshot, the way it recalls mortality, um, you know, these new self-conceptualization, thinking about memory and, and loss and love, all of these themes that, that work with, there's something about the mechanics and, and the metaphor of photography that, that enters the space of uh, Russian poetic writing in, in really special ways.
0: -hmm yeah'm I'm, I'm drawn to the the points that you make in shifting away from realism let's say or neorealism the photograph photography as historical or documentary verisimilitude as, as as you describe it more toward I don't know if' I'm, I'm making a generalization here but more toward light and water and the dark room and the workshop and the and the studio. And I wonder if you might talk a little bit about where photography fits with the Russian and later Soviet avant-garde. You you mentioned your choice of two poets who are who have stayed and two who are part of the emigration. So um, could could you deal in maybe some specifics about the work of, of Pasternak and Svetiva and Brodsky and so forth, Akhmadulina? What, what is it in their poetry that that you see as as recovering that world beyond documentary recordings of the everyday.
1: Yeah, so I I think it works it works differently with each poet. Um so Pasternak is really interested in in um technolo- the technology of photography. Um, so he he doesn't write much about still photographs. He writes uh, against portraiture quite often. He's very dismissive of his own likeness in photographs and and the likeness of you know people he knows. he He's very critical of of the photographic portrait. Yet what he's passionate about is the is the technology, the sort of process of striving to capture, uh, something taken from life, you know, a, a moment from the natural world, but he doesn't want to put it in still frames, the frozen form. He's resisting that and opening up this possibility of kind of an eternal um, process. You know, a technology for capturing the ephemeral and the uh, and and the natural world. Um, so we could see this in a in a poem like. Uh, mirror, zerkala. I think this is a great example of this. Where he's writing about uh it's a scene where there's a reflection of like a windy kind of um very active world outside the room and it's being reflected in a mirror. Um this tall, this tall mirror, uh um that's that's standing in the room. And so there's this ecstatic sort of uh, narrative voice that just keeps being surprised by the fact that the the swinging of the motion of the outside world that's captured in the mirror reflection doesn't break the glass uh, of the mirror. Right. It's so it's so dynamic. Uh, and he even at one point has the mirror covered with collodion. Um, he says it it seems as if it's all covered in collodion and colloic. Um, and it's not not just the mirror, but even the world outside. So he calls up this sort of photographic process for um, this this liquid that's poured onto the the glass plates to make them photosensitive, sensitive to light before they're loaded into the camera. And so he sort of does that to the whole world, the mirror and the and the room, um, and and calls you know calls up the photographic, um, but but yet yeah, doesn't give in to that, you know, the snapshot, the, the fixed image, but, uh, keeps the world in perpetual motion.
0: That's a great, a great example. I wanted to just stop for a moment and pause over that because it, the first chapter, uh, you call on Pasternak's poetics of photography, illuminating consciousness. And I, I love your focus on, on motion and the forces of nature. I, I think this is this is so important um in in getting beyond the still life as you say and and seeing his some of his technophilia i i, I wonder if i could just like ask you a factual question w- was it absolutely true that pasternak resisted um photos of himself i mean he he seems to have like not thought of himself as photogenic i was i was kind of surprised by that in reading it in your book
1: yeah i i dug up lots of lots of examples where he's he's very self critical um and and you know sort of almost disgusted with his own image saying you know several times that he that he looks like a cretan or a gorilla in in photographs um but it's not there there are instances where Pasternak um characterizes or uh, he he writes about what makes for a rare good portrait um and and so one of the uh, Cornell did a beautiful job with the il- illustrations in this book, and there's a full-page illustration of a photograph, uh, one a rare photographic portrait that Pasternak liked. It's from 1924, and it's uh, it's he's standing, and um, his his wife and his young his baby son are are there in the photograph, and he he writes to Svitaeva about this moment and what it is that makes. For you know, made this such a good portrait. Why he turned out well, um, and in that backstory, he reveals that it, it was a hot day. They're climbing. You know, he's carrying his child up six floors to get to the photographer's studio, and they finally, you know, ask him to step into the photo. And everything's happening really in this in this kind of chaotic, um, you know, he- heavily uh, dynamic moment. And and he really credits that. Dynamism for the the this, the excellence of the portrait that that emerges from that moment, it's that spontaneity and you know the sort of uh, dynamism of that moment to get them set up for this, and then it's just the magical moment where the the camera captures him, uh, and we don't see the motion at all. We don't see any of that dynamic backstory in the in the image, but that was important to him. Um, another thing you were asking about, sort of what's going on in in his life and in his um, sort of social milieu, I, I really liked reading um, Alexander Pasternak's memoirs about their childhood and some of the early sort of photo and cinematic technologies that they were playing with and discovering. Um, and, and there's a there's a passage where they talk about uh, discovering sort of these photographic flip books that their uncle had sent. Ah,
0: yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I could, I could,
1: just
0: a, say, a bit of this. Please, um, yeah,
1: say a word about that. It. So this is Alexander Pasternak, Pasternak's younger brother, um, in his, his memoirs talking about this moment where they discover and sort of dissect the, the photographic flipbooks and make discoveries. Boris makes discoveries about the nature of photography. Um, so I'll just read a bit from this. Uh, Boris was determined to master the secret of the albums We used to study individual photographs for hours, particularly amazed by the incredible pictures taken mid-action. Gradually, we worked out that each photograph differed from the next in some imperceptible detail, and that if you skipped several pages, the difference became obvious. In the end, we came to the conclusion that everything in nature acted the same way as we saw here. There was an uninterrupted chain of infinitesimal moments, a small number of which had been caught by the camera. Boris made this discovery, which had a truly overwhelming effect on us both. Later, it also helped us to imitate the early films we saw for our younger sister's entertainment. We too made those odd, jerky motions that drew us away from the action of nature to its unnatural image on the screen. Um, so there's there's a lot in this in this um, memoir about early film technology, but I, I love that where they're taking the photographic flip books. Of you know, horse in motion, or soldiers, or street scene, and dissecting it, kind of deconstructing how photography works to capture only a small portion of, of the dynamism and sort of beauty of the natural world, and that that perfectly encapsulates what Pasternak is doing when he when he enlists photography or photographic language or metaphor in in his poetry.
0: Yeah. And, and I, I want to give a quick plug to Cornell too, for the photographs that, that were included, the eyes really of, of, of Pasternak. I mean, the, the three of them, um, the, the family in, in the photos are just stunning to me to, to see that. And I hope when people read it, they they consider the visuals um, as well. I, I, I want to shift and ask you a couple of questions about Time and and your understanding of, of time and, and loss and you cover this a, a lot in your middle chapters. So one of the chapters you have on Svetayev is through the lens of loss, and, and this is not just lyrics but also the elegiac form. Um, and, and Brodsky in in talking about memory and time and death. So what what were you what were you drawn to in in those poems? I, I think more conventionally of, of things like Akhmatova and, and Requiem. Um. But but maybe say a, a little bit about Sativa and, and Brodsky. Is, is it are they looking back with photography and photo poetics, or or is it something else? Brodsky was
1: really, um, well-versed in Svitaeva's poetry and, and wrote quite a lot about her. And so that connection that you're seeing between what Svitaeva does and how Brodsky they, how they're both drawn to photography for its way of preserving memory and, and its relationship to time is, is really perceptive. Svitaeva's photopoetics are all about using the, the photographic image as a what I call a, a metaphysical bridge to another world, to another poetic soul, to a person or writer or thinker that she can't access because she's in immigration or because that person has died or because she you know, she, she can't acce- access them in, in the real world. And so the photograph becomes this medium through which she can commune with this other poetic soul. Um, so sometimes it takes her back in time Um, and sometimes it takes her forward and it's, uh, in some ways Brodsky's poetry is also concerned with, um, photography's ability to show us a past, present, and future life of an image. So let me see if I can illustrate this, um, with a few examples. In, in Svetaiva's poetry, we have, um, examples where she, she writes a poem to her grandmother and it's inspired by a daguerreotype, sort of an enlarged daguerreotype that was in the family home. Um, and she's, at the end of that poem, she's sort of wondering if the fiery spirit that she feels within herself is coming from her grandmother. And she kind of poses this question um, to, to the, the grandmother's portrait. So she's trying to connect with some aspect of her of herself and her and her ancestor uh, through through this photographic image. She also has this this wonderful poem called Home Dom. It's from 1931. Uh, so she's in immigration and it, it begins. Um, the, the opening lines are Ispodnachmurnik Bravi Dom but the unisti may. So in English, this is out from under scowling brows, a house as if from my youth, a day as if my childhood meets me. Hello, it's me. And what I argue in the book is as this poem unfolds, the key to understanding its structure comes at the end. The final lines are, a girlish daguerreotype of my soul. And other scholars have read this only sort of metaphorically. But what I, what I found was that this poem seems to layer a vision of kind of an imagined image of a childhood home from her past with her own facial features, right? So the scowling brow. Later, um, there's this sort of this raincoat merges with uh, the ivy that's uh, on the on the building on the home. There's this layering of facial features with the features of this home in the uh, in the poem, and I see that final line: "Divjici de bushi a girlish daguerreotype of my soul as giving us the key to understanding the structure of the poem, that it's actually built as if the speaker is looking at a daguerreotype and daguerreotypes were, were these highly reflective surfaces. So when you look at a daguerreotype, you're almost always looking at the image that's there, but also your own face kind of layered on it. It becomes sort of Oliver Wendell Holmes called it a mirror with a memory.
0: (laughs) Right. Um, right. so, mm, yeah. yeah, so mm. my
1: research revealed that Svitaeva knew, you know, daguerreotypes were old technology by the time that she's growing up, but they had them in the museum, her father's museum. They had them in the family home. She had held a daguerreotype and knew what it looked like. And so she's, she's you know, layering her her mem- a memory of the past with her own sort of self-image uh, in its contemporary development. Um, and I think that's such a, such a magical example of, of photopoetics, right? This isn't about a real photograph and it's not about taking pictures, um, but she's using this photographic technology and its aesthetics to build a, a poem that layers an image of her past with an image of her, herself in its development. Um, later, photography becomes a part of her compositional process. So you talked about um, death and loss and, and memory and recovery. Um, in, in 1934, she she lost uh, a good friend of hers. It was this young aspiring poet who lived near the Par- near Paris, um, not far from where she was living with her family. His name was Nikolai Gronsky. So he's a Russian émigré, and he's much younger than Svitaeva, but they had this really vibrant friendship. They would go for long walks, and she credits him with, Teaching her to use a camera, um, early in their in their friendship, and so we have some letters where she says, "You know, come, let's go for a walk. We'll talk about Pasternak, and you can teach me to use my camera." Um, and this is a time in the '30s when she becomes really. Um, enamored with photography, and becomes very active, and s- describes staying up all night developing photographs, and you know she's sending them, and she's marking them. You can see in the archives she'll write on the back of some photographs, Birigi, right, like hold on to this, keep this one safe, right, this one matters. Um, and so after, so Gronsky dies in this like accident, or it's a possible suicide. We don't really know. In um, in November of 1934. So she had been out of touch with him. But when she learns about his death, she goes to the apartment where he lived uh, a month, a few weeks later. And I think she was probably there with his his parents or his father. And she does an interior photographic study of his uh, apartment room. So it's a you see his writing desk. You see a cabinet full of Books, you see a bed, there's an icon on the wall. It's an, you know an interior photographic study of this place where he lived and everything that he left behind. At the same time, she's writing a poem, uh, an elegy to Gronsky, and she um, she's on this search trying to like find some remnant of his of his soul, of his persona. And what I found uh, in discovering these photographs in the archive in Moscow, is that the images that we see in the poem, a very well-known cycle of poems, are, are coming in many ways directly from these photographs that she took around that time. Um, so the poem opens with an image of his writing desk and his chair, and we see that in in the photograph so my book in that part of the chapter makes an argument connecting these these images, but also the search right in the earthly realm for some aspect something that remains of his soul and it doesn't come in the photographs and she doesn't get it in the poem either um, so, so in the end she concludes that the in the poem that you know where we, where the memory and and legacy of of this lost friend and poet really resides is, is within us. It's within, you know, the things, the writing that the person has left behind and in the memories of the living that, that are carried forth. Um, and one of my favorite moments from researching this was, was discovering there's a, there's a double exposed image there and it looks like it's the, a piece of the desk. But when you turn it and sort of look at it through a a magnifying glass, you can see there's a, there's another, there's a person there. And I remember being in the reading room in, uh, in Moscow, this archive and just, it was as if I saw a ghost. (laughs) There's this picture and it's, and it's Svitaeva. She is, she's captured in this eerie kind of ghostly double exposed image um, that you can, that you can see in the book. Um, And it's a way that she's almost inserted herself into that space and, um, you know, really brought in a, in physical form, the way that her, that she is going to be an active part of preserving the memory of, of this, this lost friend and poet.
0: Yeah. I'm interested, Molly, you know, throughout the text and in the overlaps, as you say, um, in, in talking about photography is as loss or a or snapshot or memento mori. It, it seems in many ways that a lot of the lyric poets that that you've chosen are talking to each other. I, I, and I, I think, you know, in some ways, Akhmadulina is talking with Akhmatova and so forth. And I, I, I wonder, you know, how you begin to see this in terms of late Soviet culture. And this is more of a question about visual culture and, and cultural anthropology, a lot of the mistrust or distrust that that had existed from the Stalin era toward doctored photography. Um, how how does the shift happen later on? Let's say into into the world of authenticity. I don't know if that's a if that's a bad phrase. I don't think you use it, but uh, I mean certainly there are a lot of lyric poets who, who are seeing photography as, as a way into this, this this sort of life-creating interior world. And I, I wonder if there comes a point in when they're talking to each other where, where photography changes shape or if it gets old or if it's replaced by something else. How, how do you see that, um, especially for Ahmedulina, because she's, she's got a different kind of creative approach to it?
1: yeah that's a great question um i would I would point listeners to some work um by jessica vernicky she she writes about photo clubs these like photokrushki that were happening in the post war period and this kind of resurgence of interest in photography so the materials become more widely available and and less expensive and these photo clubs um you know pop up everywhere and so people suddenly are embracing photography as this you know this kind of new uh, new wave of interest in in the photographic and experimenting with uh, photography, but also just you know archiving their own sort of families and and lives. For the part of you know so much of the the Shisti right? The writers of the '60s generation, their their job is to go back and recover. Um, the texts and the memory and the legacies of these these poets that were repressed in the in the Stalinist era and i i think the way that akhmadulina Ahmad, approaches this through the photographic is really interesting so she has she has a poem uh that's you know clearly a crastic work right she's she's writing about a photograph of akhmatova and and describing it and really you know giving um giving shape to Akhmatova's, you know, past and she becomes this, uh, come becomes this almost time traveler where she, she knows. Yeah, the, that's the a history. great
0: description. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. History,
1: and she knows what's coming next. Um. So she looks at the, oh, there's an essay she writes about a photograph of, of some people at a picnic in, in 1913. And, and she, you know, she knows that, World War One is coming, and everything is going to change. And she feels this need to somehow tell them, right, to telegraph back into the past that you know to let them know, or maybe she shouldn't let them know, right? This is her, this is her sort of dilemma when she looks at old photographs of the past, wanting to somehow intervene and, and change and change the outcome. Um, and I think for me, the most fascinating part of, of her experiment with, with photopoetics is the poem that she writes about a photograph of Mar- Marina Tsvitaeva uh, that s- seems to be taken in, it was taken in Yelaboga right before Tsvitaeva suicide. But my research un- uncovered there, there really isn't an actual photograph that she's referring to. There are things that seem to remind us of her description, but she, she writes about, you know, the the poet is on a porch, someone else's home. You know, she she brings Svitayeva to life uh, in photographic form, but it's it's purely coming from her imagination. And I think calling on the photograph to sort of give some authenticity to this narrative allows her by the end of the poem to kind of recast the the story of Svitayeva not only as a tragedy but as something that that we can. You know, carry into the future and see in a different way, not only as a tragedy, but to kind of celebrate her, 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 the poetry that has, that has lived on. Um, and, and so to use, to construct from her imagination, a photograph of Tsvetaeva in her final days, uh, becomes this powerful tool for kind of recasting the narrative of what we should remember about Tsvetaeva's life, not only those final moments, right, but so much, uh, that she brought to the world of Russian poetry that, Akhmadulina and her generation are able to access and kind of recover uh, in that in that late Soviet period.
0: Yeah, it's it's one of my chapter chapter favorites. Um, mm-hmm. In your chapter four, you have a, this chapter called "Poetic Mothers in the Photo Frame," and it really is a Herculean task that Akhmadulina takes upon herself she she's Mima is trying to reconstruct as you say all of these unstable biographies and and histories and the histories of, of the great poetesses of the 20th century Akhmatava and satayava I, I think it, this is, is such an important part of your um, in book in, in writing about photography and photopoetics. And, and and I did want to ask you a question about the others that that you then move to toward the end of the book. So um, you move to the contemporary scene, and, and I'm, I'm thinking of, of Bitov, um, who recently died in, in 2018, but you feature in your last chapter Arkady Dragomoshenko and Andrei Sensenkov. And could you say a little bit about their works and how they're reconst- reconstituting photography, maybe even beyond the analog to the digital world?
1: Yeah. So things get very complicated in this, in this kind of contemporary period. Um, the, these are, these are two poets who are themselves photographers and, and poets. Um, and they're, they're doing ex- experiments with poetry and photography that, that move us even further from, from things that are recognizable in the, in the previous periods. So, um, I want to talk a bit about Andre Sinzinkov. this is this is a fabul- really fantastic um, figure. he's He's a doctor. um he's a obstetrician. um he's mm. he's interested in visual technologies that sort of take us out of this world and create new narratives. And so he's he's uh, there's an interview he gives where he talks about ultrasound. And
0: how yeah, it's one of the photos that you include. Is that right, I saw that? Yeah, yeah.
1: So, mm-hmm. Ultrasound is sort of giving us access to information about bodies and 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 stories. And he has this urge, sort of as a creative figure, to sometimes rewrite, want to rewrite these these narratives. Um, but as a photographer, he his photographs, and you can see this in the book, some examples. They're not recognizable as, as things from this world um they, they they were almost like he's taking us into these kind of microscopic distorted places um you see like drops of water and and other worlds that are constructed through his photographs and um it's it's a bit hard to explain without some images um and then his poetry uh about photography tends to be these small um m- these miniature cycles of poems uh written in blank verse. And one of my favorite examples is he discovered a set of photographs by the New York photographer John Glassy. John Glassy mm-hmm. has this whole book; it's called uh, "Bicycles Locked to Poles," and all of the photographs in this in this book are taken in his you know East Village neighborhood, and it's just bicycles that are locked to poles in like various states of disrepair <laughs> that have been <laughs> abandoned. And for Sinsenkov, like someone who is um, interested in, in themes of sort of everyday trauma and violence in urban spaces. This became uh, a really inspirational images for him. And he wrote a cycle of poems uh, about these these bicycle photographs um, and it has very little to do with bicycles. Sinsinkov's um, opening up sort of other worlds just as he does through his, his own photographs. Um, and so, bringing us, you know, these these kind of hybrid texts about, you know, childhood memories and and violence in the world, um, and it's it's really something you have to kind of see and, and experience um, together. But it's, yeah. it's a complete it's a complete change from what we what has come before. You know, really pushing the bounds of what poetry does and what photography can do, and and how they can send us into what I describe as, and and this is coming from Walter Benjamin, right? This, this idea of the optical unconscious, Mm -hmm. you know, that photography gives us access to something that, that is beyond what we, what our vision can, can sort of retain. Um, And so poets like, like Drago and Sinkov are really exposing the limits of human vision and the possibilities that photography and, and poetry, uh, have for, for taking us out into the unconscious realm.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I look at it, and this is completely subjective and probably way off, but I I think of it as the body of the bicycle, and and in many ways, you know, with my own gaze looking upon it, I I think it becomes a meditation on on harm and abuse and violence and all these brutal things within an urban space and. I'm drawn to the photograph in, in that way. And, and I think drawn to the lyrics um, in in a similar way and in the recent past, I think that this is a really, you know, sort of important way of, of under of understanding the limits of language and the limits of experience and, and the self But that's my voiceover and I could be completely wrong. Oh, I think that's,
1: uh, I think that's a beautiful interpretation. I think it, it really does make sense with, with, with Sincicov's kind of larger aesthetic and his his creative project, absolutely.
0: Yeah, um, um, Molly. So we're running um, short on time, and I want to make sure that that we talk a little bit about um, your work in the context of, of other authors and, and books, perhaps that you would recommend. I, I mean, obviously, you've got some big figures like Susan Sontag and and Benjamin in their writings about photography, but maybe you know, tell us a little bit of, about what's what's interesting. To you, um, as uh, someone writing and, and commenting about the photopoetics and, and the visual arts, and um, what what would you suggest for our listeners here at New Books Network to read?
1: Well, I I think if. If we're talking about photography and literary culture, um, the the best book I can recommend is Kat Reichel's uh, Photographic Literacy, Cameras in the Hands of Russian Writers. Um, Kat is a, a friend of mine and a colleague, and, and she's doing, uh, she's done brilliant work on Soviet author photographers. She, she works with prose writers, I work with poets. Um, but this book, uh, "Photographic Literacy," came out from Cornell in 2018, and I, mm-hmm. I uh, highly recommend it. It's it's a really astute study of of uh, these are writers, prose writers from from Tolstoy, Ilya Ehrenburg, Ilfi Petrov, um, and even Solzhenitsyn and Vladimir Nabokov in her in her conclusion, um, and looking at how the the photographic practice of these photojournalists, or right these writer-author photographers, shapes their the literary landscape in the in the Soviet period, um, and it's just a it's a tremendous book.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thank you, thank you for that. And in terms of of your sources, I, I guess for others um, who are listening to this, who are interested in Russian literature and in culture. I know you managed to go through go through a lot of archives and through a lot of, of papers for these writers could could you just say maybe a couple of words about about that I know this must have been a huge challenge through covid to to finish a book but um in in terms of what you might recommend for for others to research in this field
1: Sure um yeah the Fortunately, most of the archival work that I did uh, happened well before COVID. This is a project that I started in in grad school and I've been working on for over a decade. So COVID really coincided with finishing it up and uh, going through proofs and that sort of thing. Um, I I really admire um, the, well, the Beinecke Library has the Brodsky Archive, the American Brodsky Archive, and I had a wonderful experience there. Um, mm-hmm. It's a, it's a, it's a really comfortable place to work. And um, the Brodsky archive is, is an incredible resource. I was able to find draft notebooks of, of some of his poems uh, that really brought together uh, and, and expanded what, what I was able to write about in, in some really exciting ways. Um, and I think that's just an incredible resource and it's, you know, it's here in the States and there's a lot of support for, for traveling there. Um, and I, I'm always grateful to uh, Ergali, the the uh, yeah. Russian Literature and Arts Archive in, in Moscow, and the Tsvetaeva House Museum has you know incredible resources. So those those two places have been really important in my in my work, and feel really fortunate that I've had the opportunity to work with uh, colleagues there and to use those those incredible resources.
0: Fantastic. And so the real final question right now is mm-hmm. is to ask you what you're interested in now. So um, this book came out in July of 2021 with Cornell. And so I understand that you're interested in Anastasia Tsvitaeva. Could you talk a little bit about your current interests?
1: Yeah. So in, in my work on Marina Tsvetaeva, I've had a chance to meet um, you know, so many dedicated uh, Tvitaeva scholars from, from across Russia and get acquainted with the museum staff from all of these different museums that are connected with the Tvitaeva family. And um, I several times got got to meet Olga Trukhachova, who is Anastasia Tvitaeva's granddaughter. Um, so this is, you know, Anastasia Tvitaeva is the sister of Marina Tvitaeva. And there's, um, Anastasia Tvitaeva was was a an important Silver Age writer. And I think what, what's really impressive about her, her life and her body of works is that she, she lived an incredibly long life. She lived to almost 100. So she, she has mm, had I experience writing in, in, in pre-revolutionary Russia and then throughout the Soviet period. She uh, survived the Gulag. She lived in, uh, in, in evacuation during the war Just uh, and, and lived till her late 90s um, into the post-Soviet period. Um, and she has a, a large memoir um, that talks about her her childhood and about growing up in this in this artistic family, and it's one of the primary source texts for our understanding of Marina Tvitaeva's early life. And so uh, Olga Truchachova invited me to translate uh, the the memoir, and so that's one of the things that I'm working on now. Oh, wow. snapshots of the soul is, is finished, is translating into English, um, just giving us a fuller version of um, Anastasia Tsvitaeva's memoirs. And I'm also, another connection, another project that I'm turning to is a cultural history of Tarusa. Tarusa is this small town about 100 kilometers south of, of Moscow that has this, Really fascinating literature, literary and cultural history. Um, and the Tsvetaeva mm. family had had a dacha there, and ah. um, so they spent summers there. But it's also a site of an important kind of challenge to the literary censorship in the '60s. This uh, Taruski Stranitsy almanac that was published without going through the Moscow censor, and there were consequences to that. You know, people lost their jobs and. Even in the 19th century, it's a place that that painters and writers sort of gathered. Um, so I'm interested in in writing another a second book on uh, cultural and literary history of Tarusa.
0: Well, this this gives me so much hope. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I want to say that um, for, for for future research, and I, I just really want to say on on behalf of our, our listeners here at Nubix Network, um, how much of a pleasure this is, and I really hope. Um, that that people pick up your book for the photography and, and for the writing. And it, you know, I will add that it's just a marvelous anthology of poems and, mm-hmm. and a history of Russian um, culture and aesthetics. The translations are, are superb. Um, and, and so I just really want to thank you, Molly, um, for your time and congratulate you again.
1: Thank you so much. This has been great.
0: So we've been talking here at New Books Network with Professor Molly Tomasi-Blazing. She is the author of Snapshots of the Soul, Photopoetic Encounters in Modern Russian Culture, published by Cornell University Press in 2021. And I'm your host, Stephen Siegel, here at New Books Network. Until next time.